John, welcome to the show. I want to first have you introduce yourself uh, to our audience. You come from an investing background, hedge funds. What do you do at Ava Labs? Sure. Thanks for having me, Oliver. I'm president of Ava Labs. We're behind Avalanche. We think it's uh, the next scalable, uh, next generation blockchain. So we're very excited about what's happening in the markets right now. Are you coming up with like an alternative to Bitcoin or a utility uh, token or a service or what? We're more like an alternative to Ethereum. Okay. So we have a programmable, you, know, you can program on top of our, effectively our operating system. You want to think of it that way. Similar to how iOS has applications on top. We, we make it very easy to program financial applications on top of our blockchain. Okay. So John, right now, uh, we've seen all the cryptos running, I mean, We've seen crazy moves and everything down to Dogecoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum nonetheless, of course. But I'm curious what you think here about, uh, you know, what I still call the king crypto, right? I mean, BTC is just in another world right now. As we were just discussing, the dollar has been well off its lows for a month. That's not stopping Bitcoin. High growth, high valuation tech stuff, which many, including myself, have put in the same category as Bitcoin as a high risk asset. Yet Bitcoin keeps running as the Nasdaq falters. What's the explanation for its resilience? Well, I think the biggest difference between 20,000 in 2017 and 50,000 today is actually not the 30,000 in between. It is the infrastructure that was built back then to now. It's the different channels that make it available for people to purchase Bitcoin. So the, the consumer of this is actually slightly different. Back then, it was literally the retail person Today, it is more institutions buying this because of infrastructural builds such as qualified custodians and the ability to house these things in a legitimate way, if you will. And I think in this age where we talk about Robinhood and GameStop, the thing we forget is that Bitcoin was the individual retail guy buying in 2017, and now it's the institution buying. So who's front running whom in this case? So again, it's great because Bitcoin is built as something that's democratizing for everyone. And in this case, the retail guy got ahead of the institutional guy. Indeed, uh, paradigm shift for sure, as this uh, was popular among everyday folks and internet folks and uh, crypto enthusiasts long before we heard the more recognizable Wall Street names getting on board the past year. But John, what I'm curious about is, while that infrastructure and adoption on an institutional side certainly seems to be at play in lifting the highs of the price upward as new, more powerful buyers come in, do we know what it does in terms of downside limitation? If this latest big leg of 30,000 comes from people who were the least likely to believe along the way, then how do we know that this just doesn't end with an even bigger explosion when there's bigger players with bigger stacks at the table if they decide to bail? Well, that's a great point. More infrastructure is getting built. I mean, you heard PayPal the other day say that they're dedicating an entire unit to build out their blockchain efforts. But the math is also kind of simple here. I mean, there's about 365,000 Bitcoins mined a year. So at roughly 50, 55,000, you know, that's like 18.5, $19 billion of incremental supply. And if you assume every miner, because their business model to sell it after they mine, sells it all, then you look at the demand side and you realize, wait a second, last year there was $41 billion of, of inflow into gold 
And you and you juxtaposed those two charts earlier in the intro of this show, showing how gold is actually going down and Bitcoin is going up. Bitcoin just reached one trillion in market cap. There's nine to ten trillion of gold out there. So from that math and from the supply that's coming next year, it's kind of clear to me that it's going to go up, at least in the medium term. John, it's, uh, just to come back to kind of that idea of what this experience of holding Bitcoin will be in terms of whether or not things have changed with bigger, newer players in the market. You know, at 90% down or 86% down after the 2017, you can always go a percent down, right? I mean, does the new player regime limit that downside or the huge drawdowns that neared 90% levels plus in the past? Do you think those days are over? It will still be volatile. But it's no more volatile than Tesla stock. If you look at some of the more high volatile tech stocks, Bitcoin's volatility on an annualized level is actually below some of them. That's a strange thing. In 2017, we saw triple digit volatility, and now we're below triple digit volatility in Bitcoin, which is kind of similar to a lot of uh, crazy tech stocks these days. John, to that point, I mean, one could also argue that the market has just normalized at an absurd valuation that brings as big of swings, right, uh, as a BTC. I could see, uh, you know, the point that that construes as a bullish Bitcoin point, which is, hey, it's, you know, not even uh, as volatile as some of the other stuff regular folks own. But in terms of connecting those two, do you view... Uh, from an investment standpoint, Bitcoin is being in a risk category correlated to stocks, or is it starting to move away from that? Generally speaking, in the past, stocks down, Bitcoin down over the same phases, vice versa when things are up. Are we going to break away from that, or should we still expect that? There's no doubt that as the same players who invest in stocks and in commodities who now are investing in Bitcoin, the correlation of Bitcoin will converge to other asset classes. However, it is right now still somewhat uncorrelated or less correlated than some of the other asset classes. So it still serves that non-correlation purpose that people want to look at and diversify in their portfolio. But in fairness, it is going to get more correlated over time and you will have to think of a, a different asset class. But I think we're still a little bit away from that. There's just a lot of uh, room to run right now in this asset class. Okay. Uh, John, uh, the, the one other thing here is, as we were just discussing, uh, is gold, Bitcoin kind of compete for this inflation narrative. We heard just this week Jeff Gundlach saying that, well, maybe Bitcoin's the inflation play, the stimulus play. So that's still part of it. Uh, one could look at the chart of Bitcoin and say, hey, this big boom coincides with the biggest you know, influx of stimulative measures that we've really seen to date, and that's a pretty high bar given what's been going on for a long time. So is there a risk to Bitcoin if this next stimulus package is it for the moment? What if the administration says, hey, what we told you we're gonna give you, you've got, you've got two trillion, we've got the checks that you're gonna get, but we're gonna let the economy run naturally. Is organic economic growth gonna be negative for Bitcoin? So in the short term, if they don't give the 1.9 trillion or there's less stimulus, there's no doubt Bitcoin will get affected, and so will a lot of other asset classes. However, I think of one simple thing. Um, there's a new generation of investors out there, and there, and I've seen estimates where in the next 10 to 15 years, there's like 69 or $70 trillion of wealth that's gonna be passed down from baby boomers and Gen Xers to millennials. So as those millennials have more buying power and wealth, uh, you ask yourself, 
you know, are they going to be buying Bitcoin, alternative currencies and blockchain, or will they be buying um, stocks and gold? 